Welcome to The Joe Cohen Show. Join me as I share my experience with biohacking and invite top health experts to explore the latest technology, supplements, research, and resources for optimizing your body and brain. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Gundry, the man who needs no introduction, but I'll give one anyway. Dr. Gundry is an internationally recognized as an inventor, researcher, and one of America's top doctors. He's a former researcher at Yale University and has held a director role numerous times, including the head of division of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University. Dr. Gundry has written more than 200 articles and books about cardiac surgery, nutritional reversal of heart disease, high cholesterol, diabetes, and hypertension. Since we last spoke, Dr. Dr. Gundry came out with a new book called The Plant Paradox. So... It's got to be here with you, Dr. Gundry. My first question is, has anything changed about your, you know, what you think is the optimal diet since the last time we spoke? That's a great question. And it's a pleasure to see you again. You know, one of the things in my first book was Dr. Gundry's diet evolution. And I like to think that I'm capable of evolving my thought process as new research that I do or somebody else does. I see so many gurus who stick to their guns no matter what. But I like to think that a lot has happened since my first book. And I've changed a number of my thoughts from Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution to the current book, The Plant Paradox. Awesome. Yeah. So what have you changed? So I've gotten more and more interested in how plants defend themselves. And I've become convinced like Hippocrates felt many, many years ago that all disease begins in the gut. And I've taken his advice to heart. And one of the things that impressed me about Hippocrates, he he felt that the purpose of a physician was to identify the obstacles that are keeping a person from healing themselves from within. And the physician was supposed to find those obstacles and then remove those obstacles. And then the patient would heal himself. And through the years, I've followed that dictum and I've followed it even further with the plant paradox. And I think I found, quite frankly, that there are obstacles for people to heal themselves that are hidden in plain sight. And they're in many of the healthy foods that we think are good for us, but are actually keeping us from having optimum health. And okay, so see, so what what has changed basically is you're you're more focused on the gut than you were before previously. In, in yeah. That, okay. Yeah, you know, I was very interested in the genes that we have in my first book, and with the mapping of the human microbiome, we now know that about 99% of all the genetic material in any human is actually non-human genetic material, bacteria, viruses, funguses. So in a way I was right, but I was wrong. We're far more affected by the genetic material of our other denizens than are with human genetic material. One of the fascinating things is we've, we've uploaded most of our genetic decision-making process to our microbiome rather than keep it within our genetic material because our microbiome is actually exposed to information from the outside world that we take in with the foods we eat. And our microbiome is capable of division of reproducing literally within minutes, whereas we reproduce, you know, every 20 or 30 or 40 years. And so I and a few others think that most of the information processing has been uploaded to the cloud and the cloud happens to be inside of our gut. Mm -hmm. Really interesting way of thinking about this. So, so besides the, uh, you know, the sheer number of, you know, we've got like, uh, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but we got more, you know, more things going on in our gut. What is it? More genes or more species or 
then you know we're we're ninety you know by number we're like ninety something percent gut. Right. Besides that piece of information, what has brought you to the conclusion that you know the gut is extremely important, or you know is more important than you thought, or you know it's 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 the heart of all, or for for many diseases. So, what happens in the gut is actually what happens to all the rest of us, and. What's been fascinating to me is the types of bacteria that live in our gut actually communicate to our immune system and to our brain exactly what's happening in the outside world. And it's what happens in our gut that actually determines our emotions about there are more nerve cells lining our gut than there are in our spinal cords. There's no, there's very good reason why, why our gut is called the second brain. Mm-hmm. And we've unfortunately had a very human centric approach to our body. And we've never really given respect to the other denizens that for millions and millions of years have actually evolved with us to be a symbiotic system between the denizens that live in us and in us. And the more we understand that what really happens in our gut and keeping the denizens in our gut happy, that we're a condominium for bacteria. And the more we keep our denizens, the bacteria who live in us happy, the more they take care of the home they live in, which is us. Mm-hmm. So it's a very reciprocal relationship. And what, what happens in the plant paradox is we have unfortunately pretty much destroyed the ecosystem, this rainforest that has been living in our gut for millions and millions of years with some bad choices that have happened really in only the last few years. And, and so, you know, one, one of the issues that, you know, there's a lot of people talking about the gut and one of the ways when I try to, you know, when I develop a theory, like, let's say this is extremely important. The gut is really important. I then say, okay, how do you fix the gut and how well does that work? So that's part of like, you know, the evidence for how, how much of the issues is going to be for the gut. Personally, and, I, and, and maybe you've had, you know, like when I take probiotics, the effects aren't dramatic, you know, so, you know, or, you know, different things, basically, how can we improve the gut or is there any way to restore the gut to our natu- its natural state in, in our previous history? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I know of a lot of gut healing protocols out there. And I think, yeah. There's certainly a a lot of truth to a lot of them, but one of the things about probiotics, friendly bacteria, is that the vast majority of probiotics that we swallow never make it into our gut. They're actually destroyed by the acid in our stomach. And that's why I'm a big fan of spore forming a bacteria, but Having said that, if you have holes in the wall of your gut, and we can talk about that, even friendly bacteria are problems because as you'll see in the plant paradox, there are cell walls of bacteria that are called lipopolysaccharides and they're abbreviated LPS. And I, I don't, I don't swear, but in the book, I can't help but call them little pieces of shit because this is actually what they are. And we monitor these pieces of bacteria getting into our bloodstream or getting into our system 24 hours a day. And we know that, for instance, after eating a meal or after having a bowel move, billions of these LPSs are released into our bloodstream. And our immune system treats these cell walls of bacteria as if they were bacteria. 
And in the plant paradox, I show how these cell walls are actually scanned by barcode scanners. Mm -hmm. And we react to them with inflammation as if we were under attack. Mm -hmm. So the problem for most gut healing protocols is not whether you need more probiotics. It's not necessarily that you need to feed friendly bacteria. Mm -hmm. uh, you eat, which are prebiotics. So those are all certainly important. But what I want to do is actually get to the root cause of why the, the wall of our gut has holes in it. Mm -hmm. And so when I decided to look into why would the gut have leaks, I focused my research over the last 10 years now since my first book on plant compounds that are called lectins. And lectins are proteins that plants use as a predator defense system. And lectins are sometimes called sticky proteins because they actually have as their target certain sugar molecules. And we know a number of these sugar molecules are in mucus, believe it or not. And mucus production is one of the ways that we protect ourselves against this incoming attack of lectins. But lectins are even more specific. And we know that lectins, and just as an example, gluten happens to be a lectin. But as you'll see in the plant paradox, gluten is actually a very minor lectin. There's far more important lectins that people are unaware of. So lectins bind to the individual cells that line our gut if they can get to it. And in the plant paradox, I talk about our multiple defense systems. It's, it's kind of like setting up the defensive line of an NFL football game. We have multiple layers of defense against lectins, but lectins final target is the cell that lines our gut called the enterocyte. <laughs> and these cells are, there's only one cell thickness between everything in our gut and us. And those cells are all held together with what are called tight junctions. And when people want to know about tight junctions, most kids play a game called Red Rover, Red Rover, <laughs> where there's two lines of kids and they're all locked arm like this. And one, one kid runs across and tries to break through the line. And if he breaks through, he gets to capture somebody. And, and if he doesn't break through, he's captured. So our gut cells are all locked arm in arm together. And these are called tight junctions. So the amazing thing about lectins, how they work, is they actually flip a switch on the enterocyte. <laughs> and they release a compound called zonulin. And the, the tight junction breaks. <laughs> now you've got a gap between these cell walls. And not only do lectins go through that gap, but more importantly, the little pieces of shit right. also go through that gap. Now, right on the other side of the border of our gut is our immune system. And the immune system is basically a border patrol. And the border patrol says, oh my gosh, the illegal aliens have escaped across our border and we need to sound the alarms. We need to turn on the air raid sirens. We need to get on our walkie talkies and tell that the invasion has started and we need to go to threat level five and we need to scramble the fighter jets and wherever we see anything that looks like a foreign protein, we should shoot to kill. And we'll ask questions later because that's actually how our immune system protected us back before the days of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So long story short, all these gut healing protocols that I saw had one fatal flaw, and that is they didn't repair the cause or get rid of the cause of what was causing the gaps in the gut. And lectins are the problem. So when I tell my patients, look, let's suppose you're out in a boat on a lake and you have several holes in the bottom of your boat. 
and you're taking in water. Now, most gut healing protocols, all you're doing is bailing water. You're, you know, taking probiotics, you're taking prebiotics, you're taking betaine, you're taking marshmallow root. You're just bailing and you're not doing anything to plug the holes in the boat. So what I did was go the opposite way. What I want to do is plug the holes in the bottom of the boat. And if lectins were causing the holes, what I want people to do is get lectins out of their diet. The, the major one. So, yeah. So what do you, what percentage, I mean, there, there's quite a lot of uh, constituents in plant-based foods that, you know, sure. nutrients besides lectins. Yeah. Percentage of the issues from food in total, like big picture stuff is from lectins versus other, you know, inflammatory agents in food. So I, I'm actually convinced that the lectins are pretty much the cause of most diseases that afflict humans. And I was narrowly focused on a few diseases, but as more and more and more people have sought me out from around the world, I've become become convinced that all problems stem from these little troublemakers. And wow. the reason we came to that conclusion is there are societies that in fact don't eat major lectin containing foods or have found ways to detoxify them quite, quite effectively. <laughs> and those societies actually don't suffer from our, what we consider chronic diseases. They don't ever develop arthritis. They don't ever develop heart disease. In fact, let me just give you an example. Years ago, we, as a heart surgeon and cardiologist, we get angiograms of people's hearts. We inject dye into their coronary arteries and take movies of their blood vessels. And the heart kind of sits right in the middle of the chest. And right behind the heart is the spinal column, the, the vertebra. Mm -hmm. Every patient that I've ever seen with coronary artery disease has arthritis in okay. their vertebra. Oh, wow. And years ago, I went, gee, isn't that interesting that even this 38-year-old guy with coronary artery disease, he's got arthritis in his spine. Isn't that interesting? Well, as I went along, I realized that the arthritis in this person's back was caused by the exact same thing that caused the coronary artery disease. And it was actually their, the lectins that they were eating. Now, how do I know that? Because when I early on began taking lectins away from my patients with coronary artery disease, it just so happens that their arthritis went away mm -hmm. and I've actually shown regression of arthritis in spines by removing lectins. We have a number of patients who we talk about in the book who were scheduled for a knee operation or a hip operation, bone on bone. And after six months or a year, they completely regrew their cartilage and they didn't need their operation. Mm -hmm. And this was pretty mind boggling to me, but the more I've witnessed this and the more patients who come with unusual conditions, the more at the bottom line, it all comes down to penetration of the gut wall. And wow. I, think, I think lectins are the, are the big culprit. So basically you're saying you, the, re, the way you came to these conclusions is because you treated patients with these, with you know, the, the, your, your diet, the Gondry diet or the matrix diet, whatever it is. And you've noticed for a whole vast variety of conditions, people got better. So it's not yeah. only that, you know, people in other societies don't have these issues because I would, I would take issue with that line of evidence because they're doing a bunch of other things that are different than the current yeah. society. My question would be, what, were there other things that your patients were doing or was, you know, Sometimes when people change something, they change a lot of things. Or was it simply the diet? Yeah, it was simply the diet. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and what we did was, as you know, I do a lot of 
markers of inflammation, inflammatory cytokines. And we were able to identify by simply changing the diet, removing a one-page list of foods, and that we could see the markers of inflammation return to normal. Mm-hmm. And just last fall, I gave a paper at the Institute Pasteur on the Microbiome Congress, where we took 78 patients with a marker-proven autoimmune disease. And Which one? All of them. So we have lupus, MS, we have Sjogren's syndrome, we have rheumatoid arthritis, we have scleroderma, mixed connective tissue disease, Mm -hmm. all of the ones that currently have markers. And then we put them on the program and then we followed their markers every three months. And most people within six months, the markers completely went away to normal and all people within a year, their markers were completely normal. Wow. And I talk a lot about this in the book and use some examples of people who were cured of rheumatoid arthritis or cured of psoriasis. And then they introduce one simple lectin-containing food back in their diet, sometimes by mistake. <laughs> they immediately flared their autoimmune condition. And then when we removed them, they all calmed down again. Unbelievable. Is it? So the study that you um, presented, was that in addition to the previous study you did on 800 yes. people? Yeah. Okay. That was an additional study. Yeah. And it's, it's published. In fact, I reference it in the new book. So actually early on in the new book, so people can look it up at their convenience. Excellent. Do you want to hear about the one health hack that is sure to change your life? Okay. Here it is, subscribing to this podcast. 67% of listeners aren't following the show, so please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free. I happen to be someone who reacts to nuts and most seeds and even fruits as well. What would you say to somebody who is reacting from those things? Or, you know, let's say if I would eat something that I pressure cook, I could still react to that as well. So what would you say to those people if they're still reacting? Great question. So what I'd say is you probably now pretty much sealed your gut, but there is a very fascinating communication system between the bacteria in your gut and your immune system. And one of the things that's been fascinating to me and people with allergies and extreme food intolerances, that it's, we not only have to get lectins away from you, but we also have to repopulate your gut bacteria. And we have to keep kind of fiddling with what that mixture of gut bacteria is going to be that finally signals the immune system to quiet down. Now, I'll give you a personal example, and then I'll give you another interesting example from the book. For most of my life, I I had horrible allergies. I had to take allergy shots, chronic sinusitis, and even the allergy shots, I was so sensitive that oftentimes after a routine allergy shot, I'd have to get a shot of adrenaline because I went into anaphylactic shock. I was that sensitive to things. Wow. So when I, when I started experimenting on myself about 17 years ago, one of the things I noticed was that my kind of chronic sinusitis disappeared. And then I came off of my shots and now I actually have no allergies whatsoever. I don't react to anything. And and I don't get hay fever. I don't get, you know, I don't get watery eyes. I just don't react. So you were TH2 dominant, by the way. I, I talk about it a lot on yeah. my blog. Just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there's a wonderful woman who I talk about in the book who had severe nut allergies, you know, not just peanuts, but any nut, just, you know, always carried her EpiPen with her. 
and she was on my program for about a year and she, she went to a restaurant in Santa Monica, California with a girlfriend and they had a Caesar salad and she was eating the Caesar salad and she noticed her eyes were, were getting a little, you know, itchy. And she said, mm, well, you know, that's interesting. And she kept eating the Caesar salad. And that night she went home and she said, you know, my eyes are pretty itchy, but nothing else was going on. The next morning, her girlfriend calls her in a panic. Just, oh my gosh, you know, I, I'm so sorry. I can't believe this. It turns out that their Caesar salad is, is made with walnuts, Winston, ground up walnuts. And she says, are you all right? You know, I, I thought about rushing over here. And she said, oh, you know, so that's what that was. And mm -hmm. so, so what does she do? She goes out and bag, buys a bag of walnuts. And she, you know, nibbles on a walnut and nothing much happens. And then she has two walnuts and, and nothing much happens. So long story short, over the next couple of weeks, she goes and buys every nut. And sure enough, she no longer reacts to nuts. So, you know, she called me up. She said, I'm cured of my nut allergy. I said, well, you're not cured of your nut allergy. What's happened is that we now have your TH2 dominance. That you, your immune system has been calmed down because mm -hmm. you now have a set of bugs that have told your immune system, chill out. There's nothing, you know, the T-regs are all fine. And so she was a really great example, but I'm a personal example. So, so what did, what did, how did she do to, what did she do? And also I, I would like to, I, I would be curious of people who are TH1 dominant, that's, that's going to be, a, you know, a different immune imbalance if, if you've right. been able to fix food sensitivities with those people, because I'm more, I'm TH1 dominant. I don't have the, you know, my eyes don't get watery or something like that. Well, I think, again, I, surgeons are very simple people and we, yeah, we tend to look for simple answers. We don't go looking for zebras and horse barns as, as the expression goes. And I guess the longer I've been at this, the more, I think Hippocrates who had none of, you know, our advances was right about this, that all disease begins in the gut and all disease ends in the gut. Mm -hmm. and so it's, it's finding this balance. And I don't think we may not be sophisticated enough to find, you know, okay, what, what do we drip into this person that's different from the other person? Mm -hmm. But what I like to do is, as I talk about, give good bacteria, the things they like to eat and starve bad bacteria of the things they like to eat. So, so give me an example of what somebody would do, like the, the, the process in healing your gut so that you can, you know, introduce more foods. Yeah. So one of the things that I go into it really in depth in the plant paradox is we know that these LPSs, these little pieces of shit love to ride in through the wall of the gut on a type of fat that are called chylomicrons. Mm -hmm. And chylomicrons are how we carry primarily saturated fats in through the wall of our gut. Gee. And these LPSs literally hit your ride on chylomicrons. Mm -hmm. They can't ride in, on, for example, on fish oil. Uh, fish oil is transported in a different mechanism. Yes. And that probably explains why saturated fats, and unfortunately, as we talk about in the book, even coconut oil or MCT oil is probably, at least in the initial phase of healing the gut, a no-no. Because -no. <laughs> what I want to do is I want to stop LPSs from breaching the gut wall. Hi. Anytime LPS is breached gut wall, your immune system is activated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually think as much as I'm, as you know, against a long-term low fat diet, mm -hmm. I, I will put in with my colleagues like Dean Ornish or Esselstyn or Joel Furman that initially a lower fat or at least a lower, a low saturated fat diet 
is one of the components that I think is useful for quieting down the immune system. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time with Paradox trying to compare why certain components of certain diets certainly seem to work. And I think I, I give a shout out to these guys that at least in that area, they're right. So that's one component. Second component is we know that bad bacteria love saturated fats and they love simple carbohydrates. They love sugars. And it's interesting that the, the good bacteria actually aren't able to utilize, they aren't able to compete for the nutrients in saturated fat and simple sugars. Mm -hmm. They're far better at digesting resistant starches, complex carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And bad bacteria actually aren't very good at that at all. Right. Well, what I try to do is get a large amount of inulin in people in Resistant starches, I'm a big fan of Jerusalem artichokes, for example. I'm a big fan of artichokes. Certainly, sweet potatoes are a very reasonable thing. I love people to munch on jicama. If you want to use jicama as a dipping chip to have some guacamole, which is monounsaturated fat, go right ahead. I urge people to get guacamole without tomatoes in it. And I actually source a number of brands that are good. You can even go to Costco and get holy guacamole. It doesn't have any tomatoes in it. Mm -hmm. Trader Joe's makes their own avocados number that doesn't have any tomatoes in it. What, what about if you pressure cook the tomatoes? It's not going to have the lectins. Right. You know, yeah. yeah. So what would be wrong with eating tomatoes pressure cooked? So Here's my problem with, if we're really trying to get sugars away from bad bacteria, pressure cooked tomato is still pure sugar. It's a fruit. Mm -hmm. and what I really try to do with people who think they have leaky gut or have been told they have leaky gut or they have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or they think they have candida, mm -hmm. I want to get all of those simple sugars away from them. And that includes anything with a seed is a fruit. Uh, even an avocado is a fruit, but it's basically pure fat and resistant fiber. Mm -hmm. So I take tomatoes, even pressure cooked tomatoes away from people initially. Mm -hmm. I see. And, and so, so walk me through it. Somebody is going to first stay away from lectins, right? They're going to reduce or get rid of certain foods that you have in your book that have yep. lectins. And then they're going to, they're, they're going to go low fat and low carb, low saturated fat, we shall say, and low carb. Right. You can eat monounsaturated fat. And then once they heal, they can start introducing other foods. Is that correct? Exactly. And what I do is we, we literally give them a step-by-step -step thing of, okay, what are we going to try first? And what I recommend is that people try pressure cooked lectin-containing foods first. Mm -hmm. A lot of people really want to reintroduce beans into their diet, lentils into their diet. And, and quite frankly, pressure-cooked beans and pressure-cooked lentils have a lot of decent resistant starches in them. Mm -hmm. But as, as you know, and I know, the, the lectins in beans are some of the most troublesome lectins there are. And I reference in the book, but 20% of all food poisoning cases in the United States, according to the CDC, are caused by the lectins in undercooked beans. But if you're pressure cooking them, then beans no, are Yeah, they're fine. Okay. So, you know, so what I do is, you know, beans and lentils, and I even have a pressure cooked bean recipe in the mm -hmm. book. Okay. So that's the place to start. The other place to start is with pressure cooked tomatoes or with peeled and de-seeded tomatoes, or peeled and de-seeded peppers. How, how many carbs, what do you want somebody to stay under in the carb limit when they're trying to heal their gut at that stage? So a carb, is not a carb is not a carb. And this is something I learned and I talk a lot about how, I'm, how I evolved my thinking. Mm -hmm. A number of years ago, I was invited to talk to all the scientists at Metagenics, Jeff Bland's original company. And I was a very anti-carb guy. Okay. And 
gave my presentation and one of the researchers stood up and said, well, okay, that's great, but, but how do you explain the Katavans or the Kittimans, depending on how you want to pronounce it, which your listeners probably know are an island population that confound researchers because they smoke like fiends. They eat about 60% carbohydrates in terms of taro root. They, 30% of their diet is coconut and they eat a smattering of fish and fruits and vegetables. And they live well into their nineties with no medical care. And they never had a documented stroke or heart attack. And they've been studied extensively by a Swede by the name of Stefan Lindeberg. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the common carbophobic doctor, when he's confronted with these guys say, well, they eat a calorie restricted diet and that's why they're so healthy. And that explains everything. Well, that was my explanation. It used to be Ron Rosedale's explanation and it's not true. Mm-hmm. I went back to look at this. They eat about 2,800 calories a day, which is certainly not calorie restricted, but it's what they're eating that makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. And they're eating primarily resistant starches and resistant starches are not turned into sugar and absorbed as glucose, but instead our bacteria eat them (laughs) and the bacteria actually poop out, if you will, short chain fatty acids and other fats and we absorb those fats mm-hmm. and so i went back to my research at yale in human evolutionary biology gorillas eat 16 pounds of leaves every day and they're profoundly thin and when you actually look at what is absorbed from those leaves Those leaves, they can't digest. No animal can actually digest leaves without bacteria. We're successful as animal because we learned how to cook and we can digest the cell. We can break down the cell wall of the plant with, with heat, but all animals depend on bacteria to digest plant cell walls. Even termites can't digest wood. They depend on bacteria. So what happens in the gorilla is that the bacteria digest the starches in the leaves and the sugars in the leaves into fat. Mm-hmm. Bacteria, a gorilla actually absorbs a 70% fat diet, even though he's not eating any fat. Short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids. Yeah. And so then I went back and I looked at the Okinawans. Mm-hmm. And the Okinawans are another one of these conundrums to the carb is evil group. Because they eat 80% of the diet is a purple sweet potato. That's right. The same thing happens to the Okinawans. What happens is the bacteria eat most of the calories in those sweet potatoes. That's why they're so skinny. That's mm-hmm. why the kidavans are so skinny. Mm-hmm. What the bacteria give to the human, their symbiote host, are fats. Mm-hmm. And so... The cool thing is when you really break it down, an Okinawan or Kittivan is actually eating the identical diet as a person on Crete who's consuming a liter of olive oil per week. And he's, so they're both eating, interestingly enough, they're both absorbing a high fat diet. Mm-hmm. Now the Crete's yeah. The, the types of fats are, are, are different though. Very different. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. But the none of monounsaturated one will be the short chain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just to clarify that with the listeners. Yeah. But they're all, they're all actually eating when one form or another, a lot of fat, they're absorbing fat. Okay. Yeah. And the, the really interesting thing to me is, and I think Ron Rosedale has come around to this position as well. If you look at the blue zones. The, the common uniting factor of those very different diets are not what Dan Bruckner says, but it's that all of these blue zones eat very little animal protein. And that's a little off the subject, but it's a big part of the plant paradox itself. 
All right. So, so we, we got into this by me asking about how much carbs should you eat? And, and so to summarize, it seems like you're saying that it's the type of carbs, the, the resistant starches, the fibers, those are good carbs, right? So what about non-fibrous carbs? How much of those should somebody eat? How about none? <laughs> so no, none non-fibrous carbs, but plenty of fibrous carbs. Yeah. And for instance, if you're going to eat non-fibrous carbs, the purpose of those carbohydrates in, in my thinking is, is to get a monounsaturated fat in your mouth, whether it's olive oil or avocado oil or macadamia nut oil. I happen to be a huge fan of an oil called Perilla oil, which is the oil of Korea and much of China. It's got the highest amount of alpha linoleic acid of, of any oil. And it has this really cool compound called rosmarinic acid, which may be one of the best brain preserving compounds that anybody's ever found. So, yeah. So if you're going to eat a non-starchy carbohydrate, then I think the purpose of that food is, is to get a fat into your mouth. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So did you mention in your, in your book that you eat white bread? Is that true? No, not. Okay. No. What I'm telling people is that for 10,000 years, we've been trying to make bread white. Mm. The only purpose we, the only reason peasants were given brown bread because we were getting rid of the major lectins in bread by taking the hull away. Okay. If I am going to eat bread, which I will do in France and Italy, because it's interesting, they, they don't use Roundup on their wheat okay. in France or Italy. And the strain of wheat is totally different. But the only reason I will eat bread is to get olive oil into my mouth. <laughs> And, and so, yeah, it's, it's a sponge and I learned this from Italians. And so, but I, I haven't had a piece of bread in America in so long. I, I can't remember. And I, I actually show a lot of people who have returned to their mother country after getting cured of IBS or leaky gut and they eat the foods of their native country. Mm -hmm. just fine and clean breads and yogurts. And then they figure they're cured and they come back to our country and eat our bread or eat our yogurt. And they immediately return to the problem that, so foods are completely different in, in America. Unfortunately, we have, we are poisoning ourselves and people should realize that almost all of our grains are harvested with an application of Roundup. People, you know, are aware that Roundup is associated with GMO. But in the last 10 years, Roundup has been used on conventional crops, conventional wheat, conventional corn, conventional oats to facilitate mechanical harvesting. Mm -hmm. And it's a desiccant. It kills the plant. And it's a lot easier to harvest a field if the plants are dead. Mm -hmm. And what folks don't realize is the Roundup is not washed off of the grains. And even if it doesn't enter our food supply directly as cereals or breads, it's fed to animals. And we now know that the animals have Roundup in their meat. And so... We could be eating a free range chicken that was fed corn and soybeans mm -hmm. and inadvertently be eating Roundup in that free range chicken. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about, there's like a growing trend of people being sensitive to what they call histamine foods or, or something like that. What, what do you think is the cause of people who are intolerant to histamine foods. You, would you tie it back to lectins as well? Yeah, I actually would. And you know, the, the low histamine chef, and I, I would, would fracture her name, so I'm not even going to try it. Yasmina. 
Yeah, Jasmina. I'm sorry with her last name. I don't think I can do it. But Jasmina even did a blog about a year ago, maybe it was a little later than that, that says, you know, I'm beginning to think that this histamine intolerance is actually caused by lectins. So I got a real smile on my face when she said that. And there, there are people who clearly are sensitive to high histamine foods. But again, it comes down to the fact that your mast cells, which, you know, are part of your immune system, have to be ready to be triggered by your immune system being on guard. Mm -hmm. I think once the immune system is quieted, that these problems tend to subside. I thought I was very histamine sensitive. Oh, interesting. I'm not anymore. So right. the other thing, while we're on the subject, I know you got to get through a lot of stuff. Yeah. We, we've been lured into thinking that we should eat lots of anti-inflammatory foods. And again, eating anti-inflammatory foods is you know, is trying to douse a raging fire with, you know, a thimble of water it, or trying to empty out a boat that's got leaky holes with, you know, with a cup rather than a bucket. And those, don't get me wrong, they're, they're wonderful foods, but to think that that is going to treat the underlying problem, I've come to realize is quite naive. Mm-hmm. So it's more about avoidance rather than That's exactly right. avoidance and adding in certain foods with yeah. the short chain fatty acids that are going to produce the short chain fatty acids. Right. Um, while we're on that subject, what do you think? It seems like you would think that soluble fiber is going to be more important than insoluble fiber because the soluble That's fiber is going to produce those fatty acids. Correct. Yeah. I'm okay. a huge fan of soluble fiber. I think, I think inulin is unbelievable. I think leucomonin, konjac root is unbelievable. <laughs> I could have people eat miracle noodles every day. I think their health would improve dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, again, the other great sources of inulin or okra. And I mean, you look at the Italians who have a tricolori salad, which is Belgian endive, radicchio, and arugula. <laughs> so. Radicchio and endive is high in inulin mm -hmm. and arugula is a cruciferous vegetable. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of look at that and cruciferous vegetables have a little compound called dim in them. Yeah. It actually tells the immune system to kind of chill out that things aren't as bad as you think they are at the wall of the intestine. Mm -hmm. So I love to study cultures and figure out how did they come about these things? So yeah, the Italians eat huge amounts of soluble fiber. Interesting. Since the last time we spoke, I actually, I started a gene company that does gene analysis. And so I'm, I'm obviously very into this stuff. And, uh, you know, what I found with my clients and myself as people who are sensitive to these foods, they, there's an overwhelming number of them that have a gene that is probably that, that within the cannabinoid system the cannabinoid receptor one gene. And they don't know exactly what it's doing, but it does change the function in some way. And, you know, what, and, and it's just very interesting. And what I found is the thing that helps the most with my food sensitivities happens to be, and, and, and you know, if I just stop eating a lot of foods, you know, I have no problems, right? Sure. But if I, if, if I want to be a somewhat normal person, I have to include some foods. And I found that the, single best thing is THC and CBD oil. Yeah. I take them together and, and I actually tried that a long time ago because I, I, I was already onto the cannabinoid system a while back, but you know, smoking it, you're just knocked out the next day and you can't do work for the rest of, you know, for a couple of days. I found that eating very low doses of it, it's, it's, you know, it's going in your gut and it's staying there for a while. It's just digesting in your gut. You're eating a low dosage, so I don't get high on it or anything. And you combine it with the CBD oil, it's very, has a quite a synergistic effect. So I found that interesting. And, and the other thing that, uh, yeah, and it was interesting that the gene, if you, when I did research on the gene, it was associated with all these issues, being thin, having anxiety, you know, a lot of autoimmune issues, things like that. And so I, I found that, you know, the, 
the evidence from the science, my own experience, and then you know, seeing the variations that were way more like people with these issues were way more likely to have it. And then trying things that help the cannabinoid system was, was, was quite interesting. One more point is that in your other study, you said adiponectin was a marker, iadiponectin. Turns out that the cannabinoid system decreases adiponectin. So, but you know, by taking THC, it should decrease adiponectin levels, which again, it, it could be a marker or it could also be its own, its own thing that's causing problems. And I have seen studies that it stimulates TH1 and TH17 immunity. Uh, so, and I think TH17 is worse. Yeah. So, so the, I just find all that stuff interesting. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You know, the reason I got interested in adiponectin years ago is adiponectin is taught to, to us as an amazing, great hormone. And it, you know, prevents diabetes, it prevents metabolic syndrome. And if, if adiponectin is, is high, it's a wonderful thing. Right. And, and I mean, when I give lectures to doctors, they still are, oh, no, no, you really want high adiponectin. And I said, well, wait a minute. You know, in, in the, in the women's health study in New England, they found that skinny women with high adiponectin had a very high incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever if it's supposed to be so good for you. Right. And then there's a couple of really good studies that show that people with rheumatoid arthritis have a high adiponectin level. Mm -hmm. Especially in the synovial tissue. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think a high adiponectin level is, to me, it whether it's a marker or whether we should actively try to get it down, I haven't decided yet, but I think it's a real player in all of this. And I think we should be paying attention to an elevated adiponectin level. And I think, yeah, the, the cannabinoid system is, is fascinating. And you're right. A lot of people in, in your position, you know, the skinny, anxious people, always say that, you know, the only relief they often get is, you know, smoking pot or, yeah. and it's the only thing that, and, and, and of course, you know, traditional docs kind of, you know, kind of go really, but yeah. And, and that's, that's fantastic that you've done that research. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's just, it's anecdotal, you know, if, if somebody wants to study it, that would be great, but it is anecdotal. If, if anyone wants to upload their genetics to the program at selfdecode.com. And you could see if you have that gene, it's in the CNR1 gene. So you could just search for that. So what, do you have any probiotics that you really like to help restore the gut? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of a spore forming bacteria called Bacillus coagulans. It's marketed as BC30. I have it in my polyphenol formula called Vital Reds, but which is great in its own right, and it's a shameless plug. But if by the way, my mother called me up one day and she's like, "I bought this supplement called Vital Reds. It's from this guy, Doctor Gundry." I was just laughing. <laughs> uh, she said she found it because she she just googled like how to reverse heart disease or something. <laughs> And there I was. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. So when I was making my formula, the guys who discovered BC30, which is a spore forming bacteria, is a company called Galadins, which was based in San Diego. And I, I got to know them. They've now moved to Columbus, Ohio. But they, mar they license BC30 to shift. And Schiff markets it as digestive advantage. And if, you know, and it's in most drugstores, sometimes it's at Costco. So if you really want the best, BC30, is, I think, is the way to go. Mm -hmm. It's really one of the only bacteria that has been proven to make it through stomach acid and populate the gut. And the other interesting thing about BC30 it's not a native flora and people, people should understand that the vast majority of the probiotics that are sold are not commensural bacteria. They're not native to our gut. 
Mm-hmm. These probiotics, they basically stay in your gut for about two weeks. If you will, they're vacationing and, and then they leave. They really never establish residency. And people have to understand that taking even the best of the probiotics is almost a stopgap measure. The thing I like about BC30 is that it it does seem to act like a policeman between warring factions, which is which is interesting. I'm not guaranteeing, you know, that it'll do that. The other one I like is L. Ruteri, which is interesting in that it grows hair in experimental animals, and it does so by changing the communication system between the gut and hair follicles, which is pretty cool. Thanks. I actually have posts on those two species. Yeah. So, so. yeah. Now, you and you and I, through the years, either independently or together, think <laughs> a lot alike. So, yeah, no, you, you do great work. I appreciate that. What What are the most important supplements to take in general? Like you have what you call the G6. You want to tell us more about that? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm, as you know, a lot of my research through the years, particularly in cardiovascular health, has looked at the impact of polyphenols, which are, are plant compounds that we know now interact with bacteria. And it's actually the bacteria digesting these polyphenols and the byproducts of that bacterial digestion that actually activates polyphenols. We used to think polyphenols were magical antioxidants. And I remember about four years ago at the International Polyphenol Conference, the, the head of the conference started the conference was saying any of those who are here, and there are around 500 of us, actually think that polyphenols are antioxidants may leave the room because you're so far behind our research that I don't even want to try to catch you up. And there was a big, you know, hush and, and then clamoring. And he's absolutely right. We've been incredibly ignorant that something that could happen in a Petri dish in an e, in, in vitro preparation has anything to do with a living organism in vivo. And so we now know that polyphenols change bacterial behavior. We know from the Cleveland Clinic that polyphenols paralyze certain gut bacteria so that they don't make a compound called TMAO. And that was the famous compound that, you know, all the vegans said, don't eat meat because it's going to produce T- TMAO. Right. Just That's correct. And to, you know, and to the Cleveland clinics, and, and this was kind of Esselstyn's group, but to their, it's not, a, it's actually answering your question to Esselstyn's group's honor. They said, well, now wait a minute. The, the Mediterranean, they eat a lot of fish. They certainly eat some meats, but they don't have much heart disease. What gives? And so they went back and looked and said, well, maybe it's some of the compounds that the Mediterraneans are eating that's stopping them from making TMAO out of these foods. And sure enough, they found that polyphenols in olive oil, the polyphenols in red wine, just to single out two, when they paralyzed bacteria, the bacteria were still living, but they could not convert carnitine into TMAO. And so it solved one of the great mysteries of the Mediterranean diet. So I think the more polyphenols I can get into people, the better. Interesting. So I want to touch upon two more aspects of the diet. One is you have this thing called a keto plant paradox in your book, right? right? Who do you recommend that to? And, you know, what stage, which conditions? Tell us about that. So I see, I see a lot of people with advanced cancer. I see a lot of people with early moderate dementia. I see a number of people with pretty out of control diabetes and people with advanced kidney failure who are about to go on dialysis. And 
What I can tell you is that I, I call this the Keto Plant Paradox Intensive Care Program. And in, in this, I am convinced, as well as many others, that this is a mitochondrial dysfunction problem. And Otto Warburg was right about a lot of things in how cancer cells, just to use an example, have defective mitochondria. And what I try to do is have people consume about an 80% fat diet, a very limited protein diet, protein, animal protein should only be about 10% of their diet, if at all, and a very limited carbohydrate diet, about 10%, primarily of, of soluble carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And that I, I teach people that, again, the only purpose of food is to get fat into their mouth. Uh, and, but we really have to do a real mind twist on most people. The thing that they have to take away as a paleo diet is an unmitigated disaster because it's a very high protein diet. Mm -hmm. One of the things that protein does, and this is the mistake Adkins made. And I know what Adkins did because Random House bought my first book and my editor did all the Adkins books, and I got to know Adkins Ghostwriter very well. And Adkins did not know that protein is converted into sugar. And he did not know that we don't waste energy. So that when we eat protein in excess, we don't, we don't store the protein. We don't have a storage system for protein. We convert that protein into sugar. Because we have a storage system which, for sugar, which is fat. Mm -hmm. And so we know that that's actually cancer cells thrive on certain amino acids from animal protein. Talk about like leucine. Yeah, leucine, isoleucine, methionine, correct. Okay. And so so I, that was actually, we got into my next topic, which was the animal protein. When you're going to go on these kinds of diets, inevitably, I mean, not inevitably, but it's going to be a higher protein diet unless you want to go ketogenic or you're going super high fat. So you're, you're going to recommend a lower protein diet to everybody or to some people? How does that work? Yeah, to, to everybody. And everybody. I, I, I spend, and, I, it, and it makes me sad to say this because I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, you know, where, where meat is king. And I've, I've resisted this for a very long time, but certainly being a professor at Loma Linda for a number of years and getting to know the head of the Adventist longevity study, Dr. Gary Murray, who's a friend and colleague and looking at his research, it's, it, it's becoming more and more apparent that there are animal protein clearly activates the mTOR system and your listeners, I'm sure I, I won't go into that, but yeah, I have a, we have a post on it so they can yeah. look it up. Okay. So, and I've, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about mTOR and insulin like growth factor and through some very elegant research that's been done at St. Louis university with the calorie restriction society and vegans, you can actually show that the components in animal protein that we talked about clearly stimulate mTOR and clearly raise insulin-like growth factor. Definitely. And, you know, our motto here at my institute is 150 is the new 100. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's very humanly possible to expend good lifespan. And I think one of those things is we need to reduce our animal protein consumption. <laughs> Having said that, one of the, I think, fascinating parts of my book that we actually delayed the publication so I could put it in, I finally convinced my editors to run with it, is the sugar in beef, lamb, and pork called New 5GC, <laughs> which is a incredible stimulant of cancer. And it's also an incredible producer of atherosclerosis, not present in chicken, not present in fish, no fish, reptiles. Yeah. And reptiles. And it's not present in us. We, it's actually a genetic mutation that separates us from all of the other great apes. Uh, we reverted 
to an ancient sugar molecule lining our blood vessels and lining our gut. And all other higher animals, quote, carry new 5GC, which I won't go on about today in the interest of time, but it's a real eye-opener. And again, it makes me really sad as a boyish in Nebraska. Right. Yeah, so basically what, just to sum up, what you're saying about the animal protein is there's pathways such as mTOR, IGF-1, and this glycoprotein that we don't have. It's, it's foreign, and it'll stimulate our immune system. The, the I, we actually have a post on IGF-1. If you, if you look it up, it's going to be number two or three on Google. IGF-1. Okay. And I, I did a lot of research on it. It has benefits and drawbacks. Sure. So how do you reconcile those things? Like, you know, I can just list like quickly, you know, uh, it, it's good. It could decrease inflammation and some autoimmunity. It, 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 it's good for the brain, build muscle. It could help your gut heal even. So, so what would you say to that? So I think if you're young and we can, we can define young, however you want to do that, you're, you're designed to have a lot of IGF-1 and IGF-1 clearly stimulates muscle growth. It clearly stimulates repair. You're absolutely correct. So, and it's obviously there for a very good purpose, but one of the things that is, is very clear, at least in experimental animals, and in certainly my aged human population. And the, the lady who started my first book, Michelle, will celebrate her 105th birthday on May 5th of 2017 this year. She, and she still walks into my office in two-inch heels, dressed in the nines, hair and makeup. And she always runs, as long as I've known her, an IGF-1 of around seven. And most of the you know, experimental evidence is that if you want to extend lifespan, then as you age, you want to lower your IGF-1. <laughs> and you want to be, enter this kind of chronically hormesis condition where a little bit of stress goes a long way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I talked about that in the first book and I talk about it again this time around. But these people, they all run IGF-1s 50 to 70. There's very few outliers. So mm -hmm. if nothing else, in super old people, it's a pretty good marker to tell us that this, whatever this thing is doing, it is associated with good long health span. Mm -hmm. These are people who are not sitting in the nursing home, not remembering their name. Mm -hmm. But. You're right. IGF-1 is great when you're young. Use it up. You <laughs> I think. Okay, so uh, I don't want to hold you too long. I mean, we, di we didn't get through all the questions I wanted to, but I, I don't want to hold you too long. I'll come back. Yeah. Here's Dr. Gundry's book, The Plant Paradox. And uh, if there's anything else you want to say, go for it now. It, it's a real eye-opener. It'll shake up a lot of thought processes, but... Trust me, as a guy who used to be 70 pounds overweight with a lot of health issues, I've certainly shaken up my thought processes through the years. Um, that it's worth doing. I, I definitely agree. It was a great book, and I recommend people buy it. Thanks a lot. Great speaking to you, as always. Until next time. Keep up the good work. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. 67% of listeners aren't following the show. So please don't forget to show your support by hitting the follow button now. You'll not only be supporting the show, but also investing in yourself and your health journey, all while helping to keep us ad-free.